But let's see how this works. For those of you that have your Bibles, we're going to be in Titus this morning, the book of Titus. And before we get started, let me just give you an idea of how we got to this point with the Holy Spirit leading me through to get here. And uh, when Jan and I came to TBF sometime in late 2005, one of the first things I wrote down, and it really is here, although you can't read it, is Brad always talked about if you need to go to get more research and to, to look and see what the Bible says, he recommended two sites. Um, the first was Bible.org, which is very good. I've gone there a few times. It's not my favorite. The second one is SonicLight.com. And by far my favorite, and Steve's saying the same thing. SonicLike.com, for any of you that have not looked at it yet, is basically from Dr. Tom Constable, who was a professor at DTS for many years. He retired in 2011, somewhere like that. Um, but he has expository notes of all 66 books of the Bible, and you can research those and go through that. So that's kind of a place I've gone to many times when I'm looking at something or reading something that maybe is not clear. I can go to Dr. Constable's notes, and uh, I find them very useful. So that's a regular thing I do. In Over time, that website has been moved to Plano Bible Chapel, which is the church Dr. Constable started in the Plano area. And so a few months ago, I was at that site, and I thought, well, I'm just going to see what are they teaching, what are they doing right now, and Dr. Um, Murray, Larry Murray, I don't think he's a doctor, I shouldn't say that, but their lead pastor was teaching a series on Titus, and of course they were doing it like we do, it was four or five weeks, and so I had the opportunity to listen to those sermons, and I picked up a lot of things that I liked, so Here's how I'm going to present it. You're going to get a lot of good information today. Most of it's not from me. It's either Dr. Constable's notes or Larry Murray's sermon and maybe a few things the Holy Spirit's shared with me in preparing this. So um, that's that's the one thing. Now, the book of Titus, many of you have read it, you know it. It obviously means a lot to me because it gives directions to the elders of the church But it also gives directions for everyone in the church, and that's what we're going to look at today and uh, see see what it says. So, as as our custom, um, Lloyd, I'm going to ask you to open us in prayer, if you would, sir. And obviously, we want to recognize those that that serve us and protect us. And then, by all means, pray for me that the Holy Spirit will will use what I've written down here, and maybe I'll share some good things. Thank you, Lloyd. Um, I'm, I'm not going to cover the uh, uh, intro or the salutation, but uh, just so everybody knows, the book of Titus was written by Paul, as he spells out, and it's written to Titus, who was a minister on the island of Crete. So we're going to jump a little further ahead. Brad would spend a lot of time studying that introduction, and I'm going to skip through it just for the interest of getting through all this in time. So we're going to jump ahead to verses 5 through 16 in chapter 1. And the very first assignment 
Paul's first assignment to Titus was to find godly leaders, qualified leaders that are essential for the church to be able to function because many false teachers will lead others away from truth and grace. The enemy is active in promoting deception and the shepherds of Christ's church must be godly men with a discernment who faithfully guard the flock. That's a huge challenge. But the key there is godly men to protect the flock. So he gives some instructions here. We're going to look at those first in verses 5 through 9. I'm reading from the NIV when I'm using my Bible. If I switch over to my phone, I may have several. I've got about five different translations in there, so depending on which one I'm looking at. But James made a great suggestion last week for those of you who were here or if you listened online when you're reading something, switch your translations and see if it speaks to you more. Um, and I do that a lot. I've, I've got about five different translations I use on my phone for that exact purpose. But again, reading from here, I'm reading from the NIV. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So, he's very clear on the instructions there. He's saying that church leaders must be individuals who live under the authority of God's truth. They should not be selected because of their business expertise or their social influence, or their wealth. The church elders should be its most spiritually influential men. That's a big challenge. But we we pray for that. And I, and I feel like our body supports that, and I feel like our elders do our best to achieve that. All right. So, obviously... The Bible points out good things. It also points out negative things. We go to verse 10 and we talk about who are those that oppose that? Who are we to be protective of? Verse 10 says, For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. Okay, well we all know that in Paul's writing this, and in several other books, Galatians and others, he's warning of the Judaizers, those that are trying to teach, you gotta become a Jew first, you gotta go through these rituals and circumcision before you can become a follower of Christ. Uh, today, we're, we don't have so much heat from the Judaizers, we get, we get our, um, temptations in other directions. So let's, let's keep reading. These, um, rebellious people, they must be silenced because they are running whole households. By teaching things that ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. 
Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing good. So what are some of the things that we deal with in our day and age that draw us away or keep us from focusing on the core truths of the Bible? Well, really, there's two different directions, and in Larry Murray's sermon, I liked it, and I'm going to shorten his a little bit, but the one side is the legalism side, and that's real simple. We see that. That's making something stricter than Scripture says, and there's many examples, and I'm, uh, let's take movies. Uh, I'm a big proponent of nothing to support Hollywood. They're all evil. They're sleazy. There's nothing good comes out of Hollywood. That's my opinion. That's my conviction. But I can't go that further step and say, you can't watch movies. You shouldn't watch movies. It's absolutely wrong for you to watch movies. That's legalism. I'm applying my conviction to someone else. And there's other things. I mean, alcohol use is another one. The Bible doesn't teach that you can't drink alcohol. But the Bible teaches very clearly not to become drunk, not to be under the influence of alcohol. So if I say, I don't drink, and I know uh, when we did our interviews with our, our pastor candidates, that's one of the questions we ask them specifically. What is your stance? What is your position? And I loved it. They, the, all their answers were exactly the same, which was good. It was the right answer. Personally, I will not use alcohol, but I understand that people can, that's a choice, but do not become drunk or under the influence. So there's churches, there's denominations that will, you know, you can't use alcohol, everybody, no matter who you are. That's not true. That's making the standards stricter than scripture. All right, what's the other side? It's called progressivism. Progressivism. Just as dangerous. Basically it says, I have the license or the liberty to do whatever I think is good. And so should everybody else. There are no standards. It goes beyond. If the scripture is very clear, doesn't matter. That's old. It's 2,000 years old. Doesn't apply to me today. That's progressivism. So we have to be aware of both sides. We have to protect the church from that and stick to what does God's word tell us. That's our role as elders. But that's also the role of everybody within the church. Not just the elders. Not just the pastor or the minister. That's the full body should be taking that charge and be aware of that. All right, in verse 16 again, I, I just love it. And Paul's description of false teachers. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing good. So beware. They profess to know God, 
but they deny him by their works. All right, David, let's go to chapter 2, and we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 10 here. And here's where we get a little testier, because we're going to step on some toes here today. No, not really. But if we do, then obviously the, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. But Paul um, breaks out some things for different groups of people, and we're going to look at those individually. So the first one he talks to is older men. We've already talking to elders. Now we're all the older men in the church in verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Sounds pretty good. I think there's a lot more, but that's the start. You gotta, you gotta start with self-control. Gentleness is a, actually a word that comes from that in the Greek. Um, sometimes I think of gentleness kind of being too easy, too tolerant. Just means self-controlled, under control, not losing your temper, not making wild statements, and things of that nature. Alright, so then he's gonna give direction to the older women. He didn't define the age, so I won't either. Verses 3 through 5. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Okay, then they can train the younger women and we'll come to the younger women. So, specifically to the older women. With age and experience come wisdom. And many older women have discovered the secrets of godly living in relation to their husbands, to the children, to their neighbors, to the workplace. And so it's they have a role. They have a powerful role in the church to help lead by the side, to come up to the side of each other and help pull people back in line or you know, show that agape love. And I, I think that's a wonderful role. And we have many in our church. Uh, but it's a very important role. And he takes those older women and says they need to teach the younger women. So verses 4 and 5. So that the older women can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. So younger women... Doesn't say anything about working. Doesn't say anything about careers. Do you think he says they shouldn't work? Do you think he's saying more there? I think if you go read Proverbs 31, you'll find out women do a lot of things outside of the home. So I don't think that's what he's saying, and that's not what Dr. Constable thought he was saying either. But I think the the message is clear. Younger women, your first and most important job is your home and your kids and your family. That's your first and most important job. You can have 15 other responsibilities. There's no problem with that. But don't forget what your first one is. So I think that's his message. All right. So we go from the young women to the young men. You ready, Justin? All right. Verses 6 through 8. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. 
and everything set them an example by doing what is good. And your teachings show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. This always reminds me of my mom when I was younger. She was always, be careful who you hang out with, be careful what you're doing because you're giving an impression of your family. Of course, I didn't pay attention then. It made sense later. But that's what he's telling the young men. Be aware of your actions. Be aware of what you're doing so you don't bring disrespect to your family or to your church. And we've heard this many times. The unbelievers, the people outside of the Christian faith, think we're just trying to be better than everybody else. So if a young man is out there in society doing something, that's the first thing they're going to see. See, there's one of those Christians. They're hypocrites. They're doing this or that. Or they're not doing this or that. So very strong words for young men to be aware of their actions in front of all. All right. Now, the next one's even better because we're going to talk about slaves. Slaves? Does that apply to today? Not really, but I challenge you another way. Read this as employees. Read this as employees. So we're going to read verses 9 and 10. Teach slaves, teach employees to be subject to their employers in everything. To try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Can you be a Christian employee? It's very difficult because you're going to be scrutinized very, very frequently. I used to tell, I mean, I've hired many people in my my career, and I would tell them, if you want to get along with your boss and you want to get along with this company, I can give you one simple rule that will make you effective. Show up on time and work your full eight hours. If you do those two things, you'll be amazed what they'll put up with of other stuff. You'll be amazed. Because if you can be dependable and show up every day on time, you become a valuable employee. And then the bigger there is, and people have this, I mean, I had this temptation when I was an employee. Do not steal from them. That means anything. Pencils, pens, pencil sharpeners, staplers, money, merchandise. So, yeah. All right. So I love, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read Dr. Cospel's summary of those verses. I love this. Paul wanted Christians to behave consistently with what they professed to believe. The primary motivation Paul used in these exhortations come from and agree with sound doctrine. A secondary motive that he also stressed is that the behavior he advocated would make a positive impact on unbelievers who would observe his readers. We've heard this. We've talked about this. Your biggest testimony isn't evangelizing somebody and telling them they need Jesus. You have to show them they need Jesus. 
You have to show them there's something different about us so that you pique that curiosity. How come you can deal with that? How can you deal with a situation like that? It isn't our strength, isn't Blanche? It's not our strength. All right, let's go to the motivation for doing good, verses 11 through 15. And I love this. In these verses, we find that a right understanding of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and what he will do, is what drives us to doing good. The core message of this church. What has Christ done? What is he going to do? All right, let's look at those. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Then These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. We saw in there again self-control. We've seen self-controlled about four times already. It applies to all of us. And I want to jump back. One thing I forgot to say. Paul's instructions to older men and older women, did those only apply to that specific group he was talking to? No. They were all applying to all of us. But he's hitting on the things that may be the temptation for a group. It's a generalization. I certainly have known some men that can gossip better than any women I know. But he's speaking to the general generalization of, of people's tendencies, their temptations. So it all should apply to all of us. And then, why do we want to do good? Because we have the hope. We know. And that really, that's speaking of the rapture event in in reality, those those um, verses, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So for those of us that may get lucky enough to see that day, we'll be lifted up with him. Amen. All right. So, sorry. Paul's exhorting Titus to teach these things, to focus on these things. And it's... What is your reasoning for doing good works? And we talked about this many times. Good, good works versus bad, good works. What is your motivation for doing it? You have to answer that. I can't answer that for you. But what is your good works? And what are you being directed to do as a good work? Because of that salvation, because of that knowledge that you have that many of our friends and neighbors and coworkers don't have. Think about that. So... Um, in the uh, Dr. Constable's summary of these, he's basically saying the grace of God should result in the Christian's present commitment to deny what is detestable and to pursue what he values, he being God. We see God's grace in his past provision of salvation through Christ and in the future promise of Christ's return to take us to be with him forever. What a promise. Keep that in your mind. All right, so let's jump ahead to chapter 3. 
David, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 first, which is the doing good in the Word. So here's Paul's third assignment to Titus. Remind them and keep reminding them to do good in the world. God's grace poured out on us daily should motivate us to reveal His grace to others by doing good. So we're going to look at the, again, the positive and the negative, verses 2 and 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. At at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Good and the bad. We need to not slander. We need to be peaceable. We need to be loving, agape loving, not only to our brothers and sisters, but to all those we come in contact with. Doesn't mean we need to accept sin. We still need to reject sin, but we have to show love. I I loved one of our Max Lucado sessions. I think it was the very first one. Every human is built in the image of God. There's something in there. We just have to find it. We have to focus on it. Alright. So, um, just again, look at the positive direction in verse 2. Recognizing that we all came from verse 3. We've all been there. Hating Malice, passions, and we'll still face those temptations, but he'll give us the power to get through them. Alright, so let's go to the theology of doing good, verses 4 through 8. And this one we all know, I think, probably in this body, but there is absolutely nothing you can do to earn salvation. Your life has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the theology of becoming good and doing good. We're not left wondering if we are good enough. Our rescue from spiritual death, eternal separation from God, is not earned by our good works, but only by God's goodness, mercy, and grace. But it's our salvation by grace that inspires us to take the initiative in doing good to others. Or as Brad likes to say, good works are the fruit of salvation. The salvation leads to the good works. Not the other way around. So let's read those. 4 through 8. At one time we too were foolish. Oh, excuse me. Skip missed them. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having hope for eternal life. Um, I didn't, I really debated whether I was going to say this here, but I think I will. A few of the men have heard my testimony, I think on a fellowship Sunday or whatever. 
Probably the most haven't, but um, I was raised in the church. Raised in the Catholic church, but I was raised in the church. First marriage, had my kids in church, but I wasn't saved. I knew a lot of things, but I didn't know Jesus. So unfortunately, I made a lot of mistakes, a lot of selfishness, a lot of sinful activity, and I won't go into go into that grotesque behavior. But eventually I got to the point that Brad describes. I couldn't fix it anymore. I had made such a mess that I could not fix it and all I could do was fall down and say, I give up. I can't do it. I can't do this anymore. And he saved me. And then a few years later he brought me a lady who's much more spiritual than I was but helped lead me to get me where I needed to go and where I needed to grow. And I praise him every day for that. So what is your theology of doing good? Wherever you've come from, whatever age, whether you were a kid, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, whatever, or whether you were 40 years old in my case, before you figured it out, before you listened There's a reason that you're here. There's a reason that he's using you and has a plan for you to do good. Find it if you haven't already found it. Verses 4 through 6 are just powerful. Salvation by grace. Salvation by grace. Verse 7 and 8, I love this. Being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. Paul's right. This is a trustworthy statement. Alright, so let's look at verse 8. All I want you to stress, and I want you to stress these things. So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Do these things. Devote yourselves to doing good things. All right. Let's jump to chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. Devotion to doing good. It's relatively easy to talk about God's grace, sing about his love, preach the gospel, and share its message. But it's in resolving conflict that we prove the gospel's worth and work. God's grace leads to a life of good works in the church, in our relationships, and in the world. I'm focusing on, but it's in resolving conflict that we prove the gospel's worth and work. We're going to have conflict. We're going to have challenges. Unfortunately, that's a promise in the Bible too. But he gives us the strength and he gives us a direction of how to deal with it. How to survive it and come out on the other side.
verse 9, and I looked at every translation I have, and the word but is there. What's verse 9 say? But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Pretty much sums it up, folks. Unprofitable and useless. Goes on in verse 10. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. Warn them. Warn them. But watch yourself first. What's the story in Matthew about the log in your eye? And the speck in yours, Steve? I can see it from here. (laughs) Yeah. It's, It's slippery slope. But as men of the church, we're directed to call it out and stop it. If it's happening. And you should do the same to us. If we're guilty. So how does Dr. Constable summarize this? The significance of refuting false teaching in this letter is indicated by Paul's direct attack on factious men at the beginning of the letter and now at the conclusion of the letter. The false teachers with their erroneous teaching motivate their followers to works that in essence deny a true knowledge of God and destroy the doctrinal unity of the church. Paul promotes the sound doctrine which motivates believers to good works and makes the gospel attractive to a lost world. That's it, folks. Deny the knowledge of God, we have problems. Deny the truth, we have problems. We have to motivate ourselves and follow in sound doctrine, applying that to our lives, and then doing our good works. And then doing our good works. But we have to be right first, or it's not a good, good work. Not a good, good work if we're not aligned and abiding in Christ first. All right, so as I close, you know, Paul's teaching this of showing agape love throughout the body. doesn't matter if you're a young man, an old man. You have to treat each other with agape love. So where does he tell us about love? First Corinthians 13, agape love. And I'm going to close with that. I'm going to read it from the ESV in this case. Verses 4 through 8 is what I really want to focus on. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, 
believes all things, hopes all things, and endure all things. Amen. All right, before I close in prayer, I do want to uh, make an announcement that I have the honor to make today. And that is that the elders have offered the senior pastor position to David Shields, and he has accepted. And David and Brianna actually will be making a trip here this week on a house hunting trip. He'll actually start teaching sometime in March. We don't have a firm date yet. But there's a couple of other things I want to take talk about that through that process. One is, if you provided feedback after that last meeting or through this process to one of the elders, I can assure you, you your feedback was heard. As the elders gathered together and we met, we shared everything that was brought to their attention except the name of the person that brought it so that we would not be influenced by the individual. So if you shared, it was brought together as, as the elder board. We worked through that. We prayed. We know you were praying. We worked through that process. We then met with David again on phone, not face-to-face. And we worked through, does he understand where we're at, where this body is, and, you know, that our focus is on the core, what the Bible is, who God is, who Christ is, what Christ did, what Christ's going to do, and can you teach to that? Yes. His answer very clearly was yes. And then just the other expectations. This is a body with many different backgrounds. Everybody has different convictions that they've hammered out for themselves. But we can function as a body because we allow that to be your choice on the secondary issues, not on the primary issues. So as Brad's taught many times, and as a part of our body, we we ask him to pray about it, him and Brianna, that, you know, can you teach on the essentials of unity of our body? Accept the non-essentials in a, in a spirit of liberty. And in all things, show love and charity. And so they prayed about it. We prayed about it. And they said, yes, we can. So I'm happy to announce that. Anybody has questions, feel free to talk to me. I'd be more than happy to tell you, other than some personal things, how we got through that process, or any of the other elders for that matter. So, let me close us today in prayer, if I could. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, elders that stay in your word, that focus on your word, and do their very best to keep this body going forward with just trusting you, with faith in you. You've blessed this church for over 40 years. And we know that you're going to continue to bless us if we'll stay faithful to you. And we look forward to what you have in store for us. And whatever direction you're leading us, just help us to be as a body to be focused and abiding in you so that we can go out and share your love and your grace to all those that we know. And we ask all these things in your holy name.
Amen.